Welcome back, listeners. It's time for Chapter 31 in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. We dashed and stopped again at any town for days and days, kept right along down the river. We was down south in the warm weather now, and a mighty long ways from home. We'd begun to come to trees with Spanish moss on them, hanging down from the limbs like long gray beards. It was the first I ever see it growing, and it made the woods look solemn and dismal. So now the frauds reckoned they was out of danger, and they begun to work the villages again. First they done a lecture on temperance, but they didn't make enough for them both to get drunk on. Then in another village they started a dancing school, but they didn't know no more how to dance than a kangaroo does, so the first prance they made, the general public jumped in and pranced them out of town. Another time they tried to go at yellocution, but they didn't yellocute long till the audience got up and gave them a solid good cussing and made them skip out. They tackled missionarying and mesmerizing and doctoring and telling fortunes and a little of everything, but they couldn't seem to have no luck. So at last they got just about dead broke and laid around the raft as she floated along, thinking and thinking and never saying nothing. By the half day at a time, and dreadful, blue, and desperate. And at last they took a change and began to lay their heads together in the wigwam and talk low and confidential two or three hours at a time. Jim and me got uneasy. We didn't like the look of it. We judged they were studying up on some kind of worse deviltry than ever. We turned it over and over, and at last we made up our minds they was going to break into somebody's house or store or was going into the counterfeit money business, or something. So then we was pretty scared, and made up an agreement that we wouldn't have nothing in the world to do with such actions, and if we ever got the least show, we would give them the cold shake and clear out and leave them behind. Well, early one morning, we hid the raft in a good, safe place about two miles below a little bit of shabby village named Pikesville. And the king, he went ashore, and told us all to stay hid whilst he went up to the town and smelt around to see if anybody had got any word of the royal nonsuch there yet. A house to rob, you mean, says I to myself, and when you get through robbing it, you'll come back here and wonder what has become of me and Jim and the raft, and you'll have to take it out and wonder it. And he said if he weren't back by midday, the duke and me would know it was all right, and we was to come along. So we stayed where we was. The duke, he fretted and sweated around and was in a mighty sour way. He scolded us for everything and we couldn't seem to do nothing right. He found fault with every little thing. Something was a-brewing, sure. I was good and glad when midday come and no king. We could have a change anyway and maybe a chance for the change on top of it. So me and the duke went up to the village and hunted around there for the king. And by and by we found him in the back room of a little low doggery, very tight, and a lot of loafers bully-ragging him for sport, and he a-cussing and a-threatening with all his might, and so tight he couldn't walk, and couldn't do nothing to them. The duke, he begun to abuse him for an old fool, and the king begun to sass back. And the minute they was fairly at it, I lit out and shook the reefs out of my hind legs, and spun down to the river like a deer, for I seen our chance, 
and I made up my mind that it would be a long day before they ever saw me and Jim again. I got down there all out of breath, but loaded up with joy and sung out, Set her loose, Jim. We're all right now. But there weren't no answer, and nobody come out of the wigwam. Jim was gone. I set up a shout, and then another, and then another one, and run this way and that in the woods, whooping and screeching, but it weren't no use. Old Jim was gone. Then I sat down and cried. I couldn't help it. But I couldn't sit still long. Pretty soon I went out on the road, trying to think what I'd better do, and I run across a boy walking, and asked him if he'd seen a strange black man dressed so-and-so, and he says, Yes. Whereabouts? says I. Down to Silas Phelps' place, two mile below here. He's a runaway slave, and they've got him. Was you looking for him? You bet I ain't. I run across him in the woods about an hour or two ago, and he said if I hollered, he'd cut my livers out. They told me to lay down and stay where I was, and I'd done it. Been there ever since. I feared to come out. Well, he says, you needn't be afeard no more, because they've got him. He run off from down south, Summers. That's a good job they got him. Well, I reckon there's $200 reward on him. It's like picking up money out on the road. Yes, it is, and I could have had it if I'd have been big enough. I seen him first. Who nailed him? Ah, I was an old fella, a stranger, and he sold out his chance on him for $40, because he's got to go up the river and can't wait. Think of that now. You bet I'd wait if it was seven years. That's me every time, says I. But maybe his chance ain't worth no more than that if he'd sell it so cheap. Maybe there's something ain't straight about it. But it is, though, straight as a string. I seen the handbill myself. It tells all about him to the dot. Paints him like a picture. and tells the plantation he's from. Below New Orleans. No siree, Bob. There ain't no trouble about that speculation. You bet you. Say, give me a chaw of tobacco, won't you? I didn't have none, so he left. I went to the raft and sat down in the wigwam to think, but I couldn't come to nothing. I thought till I wore my head sore, but I couldn't see no way out of the trouble. After all this long journey, and after all we'd done for them scoundrels, here it was all come to nothing. Everything all busted up and ruined, because they could have the heart to serve Jim such a trick as that, and make him a slave again all his life, and among strangers too, for forty dirty dollars. Once I said to myself it would be a thousand times better for Jim to be a slave at home where his family was, as long as he'd got to be a slave. So I'd better write a letter to Tom Sawyer and tell him to tell Miss Watson where he was. But I soon give up that notion for two things. She'd be mad and disgusted at his rascality and ungratefulness for leaving her, and so she'd sell him straight down the river again. And if she didn't, Everybody naturally despises an ungrateful slave, and they'd make Jim feel it all the time, and so he'd feel ornery and disgraced. And then think of me. It would get all around that Huck Finn helped a slave to get his freedom, and if I was ever to see anybody from that town again, I'd be ready to get down and lick his boots for shame. That's just the way. A person does a low-down thing, and then he don't want to take no consequences of it. Thinks as long as he can hide it, ain't no disgrace. 
That was my fix exactly. The more I studied about this, the more my conscience went to grinding on me, and the more wicked and low-down and ornery I got to feeling. And at last, when it hit me all of a sudden that there was a plain hand of providence slapping me in the face and letting me know my wickedness was being watched all the time from up there in heaven, whilst I was stealing a poor old woman's slave that hain't never done me no harm, and now is showing me there's one that's always on the lookout, and ain't a-gonna allow no such miserable things to go only just so far and no further. I most dropped in my tracks I was so scared. Well, I tried the best I could to kinder soften it up somehow for myself by saying I was brung up wicked, and so I weren't so much to blame. But something inside of me kept saying, There was the Sunday school. You could have gone to it, and if you'd have done it, they'd have learnt you there the people that acts as I've been acting about that slave goes to everlasting fire. It made me shiver, and I about made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't try to quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down, but the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't I? It weren't no use to try and hide it from the man up above, nor from me neither. I know very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. I was letting on to give up sin, but away inside of me I was holding on to the biggest one of all. I was trying to make my mouth say I would do the right thing and the clean thing and go and write to Jim's owner and tell where he was, but deep down in me I knowed it was a lie, and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. I found that out. So I was full of trouble, full as I could be, and didn't know what to do. At last I had an idea, and I says, I'll go and write the letter, and then see if I can pray. Why, it was astonishing, the way I felt as light as a feather, right straight off, and my trouble's all gone. So I got a piece of paper and a pencil, all glad and excited, and sat down and wrote, Miss Watson, your runaway slave Jim is down here two miles below Pikesville, and Mr. Phelps has got him, and he will give him up for the reward if you send. Signed, Huck Finn. I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I'd ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking. Thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. And went on thinking, and got to thinking over our trip down the river. And I see Jim before me all the time, in the day and in the night time. Sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, but only the other kind. I see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling me, so I could go on sleeping and see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog. And when I come to him again in the swamp, up there where the feud was, and such like times, and would always call me honey, and pet me and do everything he could think of for me, and how good he always was. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard, and he was so grateful, and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world 
and the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling, because I got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, All right, then. I'll go to hell. And tore it up. It was awful thoughts and awful words, but they was said. And I let them stay said, and never thought no more about reforming. I shoved the whole thing out of my head and said I would take up wickedness again, which was in my line, being rung up to it, and the other weren't. And for a starter, I'd go to work and steal Jim out of slavery again, and if I could think up anything worse, I would do that too, because as long as I was in, and in for good, I might as well go the whole hog. Then I set to thinking over how to get at it, and turned over some considerable many ways in my mind, and at last fixed up a plan that suited me. So then I took the bearings of a woody island that was down the river apiece, and as soon as it was fairly dark, I crept out with my raft and went for it, and hid it there, and then turned in. I slept the night through, and got up before it was light, and had my breakfast, and put on my store clothes, and tied up some others in one thing or another in a bundle, and took the canoe, and cleared for shore. I landed below where I judged was Phelps' place, and hid my bundle in the woods, and then filled up the canoe with water, and loaded rocks into her, and sunk her where I could find her again when I wanted her. "'about a quarter of a mile below a little steam sawmill that was on the bank. "'Then I struck up the road, and when I passed the mill I see a sign on it, "'Phelps's Sawmill. "'And when I come to the farmhouses, two or three hundred yards further along, "'I kept my eyes peeled, but didn't see nobody around, "'though it was good daylight now. "'But I didn't mind, because I didn't want to see nobody just yet. "'I only wanted to get the lay of the land.' According to my plan, I was going to turn up there from the village, not from below. So I just took a look and shoved along straight for town. Well, the very first man I see when I got there was the Duke. He was sticking up a bill for the royal nonsuch, a three-night performance, like that other time. Boy, they had that cheek, them frauds. I was right on him before I could shirk. He looked astonished and says, Hello, where'd you come from? Then he says, kind of glad and eager, Where's the raft? Got her in a good place? I says, why, that's just what I was going to ask your grace. Then he didn't look so joyful and says, What's your idea for asking me? Well, I says, when I see the king in that doggery yesterday, I says to myself, we can't get him home for hours till he's soberer. So I went a-loafing round town to put in the time and wait. A man up and offered me ten cents to help him pull a skiff over the river and back to fetch a sheep, and so I went along. But when we was dragging him to the boat, and the man left me a hold to the rope and went behind him to shove him along, he was too strong for me, and jerked loose and run, and we ran after him. We didn't have no dog, and so we had to chase him all over the country till we tired him out. We never got him till dark, Then we fetched him over, and I started down for the raft. When I got there and seen it was gone, I says to myself, they got into trouble and had to leave, 
and they've took my slave, which is the only slave I've got in the world. And now I'm in a strange country, and ain't got no property no more, nor nothing, and no way to make my living. So I sat down and cried. I slept in the woods all night. But what did become of the raft then? And Jim? Poor Jim. Blamed if I know, that is, what's become of the raft. That old fool had made a trade and got forty dollars, and when we found him in the doggery, the loafers had matched half dollars with him and got every cent but what he'd spent for whiskey. And when I got him home last night and found the raft gone, we said, That little rascal has stole our raft and shook us and run off down the river. I would shake my slave, would I? The only slave I've ever had in the world, and the only property. We never thought of that. Fact is, I reckon we'd come to consider him our slave. Yes, we did consider him so. Goodness knows we had trouble enough for him. So when we see the raft was gone, and, the, and we flat broke, there weren't nothing for it but to try the royal nonsense another shake. And I've pegged along ever since, dry as a powder horn. Where's that ten cents? Give it here. I had considerable money, so I gave him ten cents, but begged him to spend it for something to eat, and give me some, because it was all the money I had, and I hadn't had nothing to eat since yesterday. He never said nothing. The next minute he whirls on me and says, Do you reckon Jim would blow on us? We'd skin him if he'd done that. How can he do that? Ain't he run off? No, that old fool sold him, and never divided with me. And now the money's gone. Sold him? I says, and begun to cry. But he was mine. That was my money. Where is he? Well, you can't get him, that's all, so dry up your blubbering. Looky here. You think you'd venture to tell on us? Blamed if I think I'd trust you. Why, if you was to... He stopped, but I never see the Duke look so ugly out of his eyes before. I went on a whimpering and says, I don't want to tell on nobody, and I ain't got no time to tell nohow. I got to turn out and find my slave. He looked kind of bothered, and stood there with his bills fluttering on his arm, thinking, and wrinkling up his forehead. And at last he says, I'll tell you something. We got to be here three days. If you'll promise you won't tell, and won't let your slave tell, I'll tell you where to find him. So I promised, and he says, A farmer by the name of Silas. And then he stopped. You see, he started to tell me the truth. But when he stopped that way, and began to study and think again, I reckon he was changing his mind. And so he was. He wouldn't trust me. He wanted to make sure of having me out of the way the whole three days. So pretty soon he says, The man that bought him is named Abram Foster. Uh, Abram G. Foster. And he lives forty miles back there in the country, on the road to Lafayette. All right, I says. I can walk it in three days and I'll start this very afternoon. Oh, no, you won't. You'll start now. And don't you lose any time about it, neither. No do any gabbling, by the way. Just keep a tight tongue in your head, and move right along, and then you won't get into trouble with it, you hear? That was the order I wanted, and that was the one I played for. I wanted to be left free to work my plans. So, clear out, he says, and you can tell Mr. Foster whatever you want to. Maybe you can get him to believe that Jim is your slave. 
Some idiots don't require documents. Leastways, I've heard that such down here. And when you tell him the handbill and the reward's bogus, maybe he'll believe you when you explain to him what the idea was for getting him out. Go along now, and tell him anything you want to. But mind you, don't work your jaw any between here and there. So I left and struck for the back country. I didn't look around, but I kind of felt like he was watching me. But I knowed I could tire him out at that. I went straight out in the country as much as a mile before I stopped. Then I doubled back through the woods toward Phelps. I reckon I better start on my plan straight off without fooling around, because I wanted to stop Jim's mouth till these fellows could get away. I didn't want no trouble with their kind. I seen all I wanted of them, and I wanted to get entirely shut of them. Chapter 32 When I got there it was all still and Sunday-like, and hot and sunshiny. The hands was gone to the fields, and there was them kind of faint groanings of bugs and flies in the air that makes it seem so lonesome, and like everybody's dead and gone. And if a breeze fans along and quivers the leaves, it makes you feel mournful, because you feel like it's spirits whispering. Spirits that's been dead ever so many years, and you always think they're talking about you. As a general thing, it makes a body wish he was dead too, and done with it all. Phelps was one of those little one-horse cotton plantations, and they all look alike. A rail fence round a two-acre yard, a stile made out of logs sawed off and upended in steps like barrels of a different length to climb over the fence with, and for the women to stand on when they're going to jump onto a horse. Some sickly grass patches in the big yard, but mostly it was bare and smooth like an old hat with the nap rubbed off. Big double log house for the white folks, Hewed logs, but the chink stopped up with mud or mortar, and those mud stripes been whitewashed some time or another. Round log kitchen with a big, broad, open but roofed passage joining it to the house. Log smokehouse back of the kitchen, and over there were three little log slave cabins in a row on the other side of the smokehouse. One little, but all by itself away down against the back fence, and some outbuildings down a piece the other side. Ash hopper and a big kettle to boil soap in by the little hut. Bench by the kitchen door, with bucket of water and a gourd. A hound asleep there in the sun. More hounds asleep round about. About three shade trees away off in a corner. Some currant bushes and gooseberry bushes in one place by the fence. Outside of the fence, a garden and a watermelon patch. Then the cotton fields begin. And after the fields, the woods. I went around and clumb over the back stile by the ash hopper and started for the kitchen. When I got a little ways, I heard the dim hum of a spinning wheel wailing along up and sinking along down again, and then I knowed for certain I wished I was dead, for that is the lonesomest sound in the whole world. I went right along, not fixing up any particular plan, but just trusting to Providence to put the right words in my mouth when the time come for I'd noticed that Providence always did put the right words in my mouth if I left it alone. When I got halfway, first one hound and then another got up and went for me, and of course I stopped and faced them and kept still. And such another powwow as they made. In a quarter of a minute, I was kind of a hub of a wheel, as you might say, spokes made out of dogs. A circle of fifteen of them packed together around me, with their necks and noses stretched up towards me, a barking and a howling. 
and more coming. You can see them sailing over fences and around corners from everywheres. A servant woman come tearing out of the kitchen with a rolling pin in her hand, singing out, Be gone, you tig! You, Spot, be gone! And she fetched first one and then another of them a clip and sent them howling. And then the rest followed, and the next second half of them came back, wagging their tails around me and making friends with me. There ain't no harm in a hound, no how. And behind the woman comes a little black girl and two little black boys without anything on but toe linen shirts. And they hung on to their mother's gown and peeped out from behind her at me, bashful, the way they always do. And here comes the white woman running from the house, about forty-five or fifty-year-old, bareheaded, and her spinning stick in her hand. And behind her comes her little white children, acting the same way the little black kids were doing. She was smiling all over so she could hardly stand it and says, It's you, at last, ain't it? And I out with a yes'm before I even thought. She grabbed me and hugged me tight, and then gripped me by both hands and shook and shook, and the tears come in her eyes and run down over, and she couldn't seem to hug and shake enough, and kept saying, You don't look as much like your mother as I reckoned you would, but law sakes, I don't care for that. I'm so glad to see you. Dear, dear, it does seem like I could eat you up. Children, it's your cousin Tom. Tell him howdy. But they ducked their heads and put their fingers in their mouths and hid behind her. So she run on. Lies, hurry up and get him a hot breakfast right away. Or did you get your breakfast on the boat? I said I'd got it on the boat. So then she started for the house, leading me by the hand and the children tagging after. When we got there, she set me down in a split-bottom chair and set herself down in a little low stool in front of me, holding both of my hands, and says, Now, I can have a good look at you. And laws of me, I've been hungry for it many and many a time, all these long years, and it's come at last. We've been expecting you a couple of days and more. What kept you? The boat get aground? Uh, yes'm. She... Don't say yes'm. See Aunt Sally. Where'd she get aground? I didn't rightly know what to say, because I didn't know whether the boat be coming up the river or down. But I'd go a good deal on instinct, and my instinct said she'd be coming up from down toward New Orleans. That didn't help me much, though, for I didn't know the names of the bars down that way. I see I'd got to invent a bar, or forget the name of the one we got aground on. Now I struck an idea and fetched it out. It wasn't the grounding. That didn't keep us back but a little. We blowed out a cylinder head. Good gracious. Anybody hurt? No. Well, it's lucky, because sometimes people do get hurt. Two years ago, last Christmas, your Uncle Silas was coming up from New Orleans on the little old alley rook, and she blowed out a cylinder head and crippled a man. And I think he died afterwards. He was a Baptist. Your Uncle Silas knowed a family in Baton Rouge that knowed his people very well. Yes, I remember now. He did die. Mortification set in, and they had to amputate him. But it didn't save him. Yes, it was a mortification. That was it. He turned blue all over, and died in the hope of a glorious resurrection. They say he was a sight to look at. Your uncle's been up to the town every day to fetch you, and he's gone again, not more than an hour ago. He'll be back any minute now. You must have met him on the road, didn't you? Oldish-looking man with a... No, I didn't see anybody, Aunt Sally. 
The boat landed just at daylight, and I left my baggage on the wharf boat and went looking around the town and out a piece in the country to put in the time and not get here too soon. So I come back down the back way. Who'd you give the baggage to? Nobody. Why, child, it'll be stole. Not where I hit it. I reckon it won't, I says. How do you get your breakfast so early on the boat? Now, that was kind of thin ice. But I says, The captain seen me standing around and told me I'd better have something to eat before I went ashore. So he took me in the Texas to the officer's lunch and gave me all I wanted. I was getting so uneasy I couldn't listen good. I had my mind on the children all the time. I wanted to get them out to one side and pump them a little and find out who I was. But I couldn't get no show with Mrs. Phelps keeping it up and running on so. Pretty soon she made the cold chill streak all down my back when she says, But here we're running on this way, and you hain't told me a word about sis nor any of them. Now I'll rest my works a little, and you start up yarn. Just tell me everything. Tell me all about them, every one of them, and how they are, and what they're doing, and what they told you to tell me, and every last thing you can think of. Well, I seen I was up a stump, and up it good. Providence had stood by me this far all right, but I was hard and tight aground now. I see it weren't a bit of use to try to go ahead. I've got to throw up my hand. So I says to myself, Here's another place where I got to risk the truth. I opened my mouth to begin, but she grabbed me and hustled me in behind the bed and says, Here he comes. Stick your head down lower. There, that'll do. You can't be seen now. Don't you let on you're here. I'll play a joke on him. Children, don't you say a word. I seen I was a big fix now. But it weren't no use to worry. There weren't nothing to do but just hold still and try to be ready to stand from under when the lightning struck. I had just one little glimpse of the old gentleman when he come in. Then the bed hit him. Mrs. Phelps, she jumps for him and says, Has he come? No, says her husband. Goodness gracious, she says. What in the world can have become of him? I can't imagine, says the old gentleman. And I must say, it makes me a dreadful uneasy. Uneasy, she says. I'm ready to go distracted. He must have come, and you've missed him along the road. Why, Sally, I couldn't miss him along the road, you know that. But, oh, dear, dear, what will Sis say? He must have come. You must have missed him. Oh, don't distress me any more, and I'm already distressed. I don't know what in the world to make of it. I'm at my wit's end, and I don't mind acknowledging that I'm downright scared. But there's no hope that he's come. "'for he couldn't come and me miss him. "'Sally, it's terrible. "'Something's happened to that boat.' "'Why, Silas, look yonder, up the road. "'Ain't that somebody coming?' "'He sprang to the window at the head of the bed, "'and that gave Mrs. Phelps the chance she wanted. "'She stooped down quick at the foot of the bed "'and gave me a pull, and out I come. "'And when he turned back from the window, "'there she stood, a-beaming and a-smiling like a house afire.' and I stand in pretty meek and sweaty alongside. The old gentleman stared and says, Why, who's that? Who do you reckon it is? I hain't no idea. Who is it? It's Tom Sawyer. By jings, I most slumped through the floor, but 
but there weren't no time to swap knives. The old man grabbed me by the hand and shook and kept on shaking, and all the time how the woman did dance around and laugh and cry, and then how they both did fire off questions about Sid and Mary and the rest of the tribe. But if they was joyful, it weren't nothing to what I was, for it was like being born again. I was so glad to find out who I was. Well, they froze to me for two hours, and at last, when my chin was so tired it couldn't hardly go no more, I had told them more about my family, I mean the Tom Sawyer family, because he was my best friend, than ever happened to any sick Sawyer families. And I explained about how we blowed out a cylinder head at the mouth of White River, and it took us three days to fix it, which was all right and worked first rate, because they didn't know but what it would take three days to fix it. If I'd have called it a bolt head, it would have done just as well. Now I was feeling pretty comfortable all down one side, and pretty uncomfortable all up the other. Being Tom Sawyer was easy and comfortable, and it stayed easy and comfortable, till by and by I hear a steamboat coughing along down the river. Then I says to myself, Suppose Tom comes down on that boat, and suppose he steps in here any minute, and sings out my name before I can throw him a wink to keep quiet. Well, I couldn't have it that way. It wouldn't do at all. I must go up the road and waylay him. So I told the folks I reckoned I'd go up to town and fetch down my baggage. The old gentleman was for going along with me, but I said no. I could drive the horse myself, and rather he wouldn't take no trouble about me. Chapter 33 So I started for town in the wagon, and when I was halfway I seen a wagon coming. And sure enough, it was Tom Sawyer. And I stopped and waited till he come along. I says, hold on. And it stopped alongside. And his mouth opened up like a trunk and stayed so. And he swallowed two or three times like a person that's got a dry throat. And then says, I ain't ever done you no harm. You know that. So then, what you want to come back and haunt me for? I says, I ain't come back. I ain't been gone. When he heard my voice, it brightened him up some. But he wasn't quite satisfied yet. He says, Don't you play nothing on me, because I wouldn't on you. Honest Injun now. You ain't a ghost? Honest Injun, I ain't, I says. Well, I, I, well, that ought to settle it, of course, but I can't somehow seem to understand it no way. Looky here. Weren't you ever murdered at all? No, I weren't even murdered at all. I played it on them. You come in here and feel of me if you don't believe me. So he done it, and it satisfied him. And he was that glad to see me again, he didn't know what to do. And he wanted to know all about it right off, because it was a grand adventure and mysterious, and so it hit him where he lived. But I said, Leave it alone till by and by. I told his driver to wait, and we drove off a little piece, and I told him the kind of fix I was in. And what did he reckon we better do? He said, let him alone a minute, and don't disturb him. So he thought and thought, and pretty soon he says, it's all right, I've got it. Take my trunk in your wagon, and let on its yarn, and you turn back and fool along slow, so as to get to the house about the time you ought to, and I'll go towards town a piece, and take a fresh start, and get there a quarter or half an hour after you, and you needn't let on to know me at first. I says, all right, but wait a minute, there's one more thing. 
a thing that nobody don't know but me. And that is, old Miss Watson's Jim is here, and I'm trying to steal him out of slavery. He says, what? Why, Jim is... He stopped and went to studying. I says, I know what you'll say. You'll say it's dirty, low-down business. But what if it is? I'm low-down, and I'm a-gonna steal him. And I want you to keep mum and not let on. Will you? His eyes lit up, and he says, I'll help you steal him. Well, I let go all the holts then, like I was shot. It was the most astonishing speech I'd ever heard. And I'm bound to say Tom Sawyer felt considerable in my estimation. Only I couldn't believe it. Tom Sawyer, a slave stealer. Ah, shucks, I says. You're joking. Nah, I ain't joking. Well, then, I says, joking or no joking, if you hear anything said about a runaway slave, don't forget to remember that you don't know nothing about him, and I don't know nothing about him. So we took the trunk and put it in my wagon, and he drove off his way, and I drove mine. But of course I forgot all about the driving slow on accounts of being glad and full of thinking, so I got home a heap too quick for that length of a trip. The old gentleman was at the door, and he says, Why, this is wonderful. Whoever would have thought it was in that mare to do it. I wish we'd have timed her. And she ain't sweated a hair. Not a hair. Why, I wouldn't take a hundred dollars for that horse now. I wouldn't, honest. And yet I'd have sold her for fifteen before and thought that was all she was worth. And that was all he said. He was the innocentest, best old soul I ever seen. But it weren't surprising, because he weren't only just a farmer, he was a preacher, too, and had a little one-horse log church down back of the plantation, which he built it himself at his own expense, for a church and a schoolhouse, and never charged nothing for his preaching, and was worth it, too. There's plenty other farmer preachers like that, and done, and they done it the same way, down south. In about half an hour, Tom's wagon drove up to the front stile, and Aunt Sally, she seen it through the window, because it was only about fifty yards, and she says, Why, there's somebody come. I wonder who tis. Why, I do believe it's a stranger. Jimmy? That's one of the children. Run and tell lies to put on another plate for dinner. Everybody made a rush for the front door, because, of course, a stranger don't come every year. So he lays over the yaller fever for interest when he does come. Tom was over the stile and starting for the house. The wagon was spinning up the road for the village, and we was all bunched in the front door. Tom had his store clothes on, and an audience, and that was always nuts for Tom Sawyer. In them circumstances, it weren't no trouble to him to throw in an amount of style that was suitable. He weren't the kind of boy to meekly go along up the yard like a sheep. No, he walked up like something important, like a ram. When he got in front of us, he lifts his hat ever so gracious and dainty, like it was a lid of a box that had butterflies asleep in it, and he didn't want to disturb them. And he says, Mr. Archibald Nichols, I presume? No, my boy, says the old gentleman. I'm sorry to say, your driver has deceived you. Nichols' place is down a matter of three miles more. Come in, come in. Tom, he took a look back over his shoulder and says, Too late, he's out of sight. Yes, he's gone, my son, and you must come in and eat your dinner with us, and then we'll hitch up and take you down to Nichols. Oh, I can't make you so much trouble. I couldn't think of it. I'll walk. I don't mind the distance. 
but we won't let you walk. It wouldn't be Southern hospitality to do that. Come right in. Oh, do, says Aunt Sally. It ain't been a bit of trouble to us, not a bit in the world. You must stay. It's a long, dusty three miles. We can't let you walk. And besides, I've already told him to put on another plate when I seen you coming, so you mustn't disappoint us. Come right in and make yourself at home. So Tom, he thanked them very hearty and handsome, and let himself be persuaded, and come in. And when he was in, he said he was a stranger from Hicksville, Ohio, and his name was William Thompson, and he made another bow. Well, he run on, and on, and on, making up stuff about Hicksville, and everybody in it he could invent. And I getting a little nervous, wondering how this was going to help me out of my scrape. And at last, still talking along, he reached over and kissed Aunt Sally right on the mouth, and then settled back again in his chair comfortable, and was going on talking. But she jumped up and wiped it off with the back of her hand and says, You audacious puppy! He looked kind of hurt and says, I'm surprised at you, ma'am. You're sur- what? Who do you think I am? I have a good reason to take... What do you mean by kissing me? He looked kind of humble and says, I didn't mean nothing, ma'am. I didn't mean no harm. I, I thought you'd like it. Why, you born fool! She took up the spinning stick, and it looked like it was all she could do to keep from giving him a crack with it. What made you think I'd like it? Well, I don't know. Only they... They told you I would? Whoever told you's another lunatic. I never heard the like of it. Who's they? Why, everybody. They all said so, ma'am. It was all she could do to hold in, and her eyes snapped, and her fingers worked like she wanted to scratch him. And she says, Who's everybody? Out with their names, or they'll be one idiot short. He got up and looked distressed, and fumbled his hat and says, I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting it. They told me to. They all told me to. They said, kiss her, and said she'd like it. They all said it, every one of them. I'm sorry, ma'am, I won't do it no more. I won't, honest. You won't, won't you? Well, I should reckon you won't. No, ma'am, I'm honest about it. I won't ever do it again. Till you ask me. Till I ask you? Well, I never seen the beat of it in my born days. I'll lay you'll be the Methuselah numbskull of creation before I ever ask you, or the likes of you. Well, he says, it does surprise me so. I can't make it out. They said you would. I thought you would. But... He stopped and looked around slow, like he wished he could run across a friendly eye somewhere, and fetched up on the old gentleman's and says, Didn't you think she'd like me to kiss her, sir? Well, nope, I, uh... I don't believe I did. Then he looks around the same way to me and says, Tom? Tom, don't you think Aunt Sally would open her arms and say, Sid Sawyer? My land, she says, breaking in and jumping for him. You impudent young rascal, to fool a body so. And then she was going to hug him, but he fended her off and says, Not till you've asked me first. So she didn't lose no time, but asked him, and hugged him and kissed him over and over again, and then turned him over to the old man, and took what was left. And after they got a little quiet again, she says, Why, dear me, I never seen such a surprise. We weren't looking for you at all, but only Tom. 
Sis never wrote to me about anybody coming but him. It's because it weren't intended for any of us to come but Tom, he says. But I begged and begged, and at the last minute she let me come, too. So, coming down the river, me and Tom thought it would be a first-rate surprise for him to come here to the house first, and for me to by and by tag along and drop in, and let on to be a stranger. But it was a mistake, Aunt Sally. This ain't no healthy place for a stranger to come. No, not impudent whelps, Sid. You ought to had your jaws boxed. I ain't been so put out since I don't know when. But I don't care. I don't mind the terms. I'd be willing to stand a thousand such jokes to have you here. Well, to think of that performance, I don't deny it. I was most putrefied with astonishment when you gave me that smack. We had dinner out in that broad open passage betwixt the house and the kitchen, and there was things enough on that table for seven families, and all hot, too. None of your flabby, tough meat that's laid in a cupboard in a damp cellar all night and tastes like a hunk of cold cannibal in the morning. Uncle Silas, he asked a pretty long blushing over it, but it was worth it, and it didn't cool a bit, neither, the way I've seen them kind of interruptions do lots of times. There was a considerable good deal of talk all afternoon, and me and Tom was on the lookout all the time, but it weren't no use. They didn't happen to say nothing about my runaway slave, and we was afraid to try to work up to it. But at supper, at night, one of the little boys says, Pa, mayn't Tom and Sid and me go to the show? No, says the old man. I reckon there ain't going to be any, and you couldn't go if there was, because the runaway slave told Burton and me all about that scandalous show. "'and Burton said he would tell the people. "'So I reckon they've drove the audacious loafers out of town before this time. "'So there it was. "'But I couldn't help it. "'Tom and me was to sleep in the same room and bed. "'So, being tired, we bid good night and went up to the bed right after supper "'and clumb out of the window and down the lightning rod "'and shoved for the town. "'For I didn't believe that anybody was going to give the king and the duke a hint. "'And so if I didn't hurry up and give them one, "'they'd get into trouble sure.' On the road, Tom, he told me about how it was reckoned I was murdered, and how Pap disappeared pretty soon, and didn't come back no more, and what a stir there was when Jim run away. And I told Tom about all our royal non-such rapscallions, and as much of the raft voyage as I had time to, as we struck into the town and up through the middle of it. It was as much as half after eight then. Here comes a raging rush of people with torches, and an awful whooping and yelling and banging tin pans and blowing horns, and we jumped to one side to let them go by. And as they went by, I see they had the king and the duke astraddle of a rail. That is, I knowed it was the king and the duke, though they was all over tar and feathers, and didn't look like nothing in the world that was human. Just looked like a couple of monstrous big soldier plumes. Well, it made me sick to see it, and I was sorry for them poor pitiful rascals. It seemed like I couldn't ever feel any hardness against them any more in the world. It was a dreadful thing to see. Human beings can be awful cruel to one another. We seen we was too late. Couldn't do no good. We asked some stragglers about it, and they said everybody went to the show looking very innocent, and laid low and kept dark till the poor old king was in the middle of his cavortings on the stage. Then somebody give a signal, and the house rose up and went for them. So we poked along back home, and I weren't feeling so brash as I was before, but kind of ornery and humble, and to blame somehow, though I hadn't done nothing. 
but that's always the way. It don't make no difference whether you do right or wrong. A person's conscience ain't got no sense, and just goes for him anyway. If I had a yaller dog that didn't know no more than a person's conscience does, I'd poison him. It takes up more room than all the rest of a person's insides, and yet ain't no good know-how. Tom Sawyer, he says the same. Next week we'll be back with Chapter 34. If you have a moment and you enjoy our show, please do stop and give us a review at Apple Podcast App. We would appreciate that very much. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you then.